Welcome to Fidel Ortho Science Bites. We're proud to sponsor this podcast as a continuing commitment to transform the power of diagnostics into a healthier future for all. Today, our topic is the surprising benefits of becoming a repeat blood donor. I am Tony Casina, and today we have a very special guest. I am joined by Dr. Mark Levine. Dr. Levine is a clinical professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and the Colorado School of Public Health. He serves as a faculty associate at the university's Center for Bioethics and Humanities, where his prime interests are in health professional education, the history of medicine, and community empowerment. Dr. Levine served for 14 years as the Chief Medical Officer in the Denver Office of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, during which time he was active in developing and maintaining agency initiatives in clinical quality, payment reform, and value-based purchasing. As an alumnus of Rutgers College and Temple University School of Medicine, Dr. Levine completed his residency training in internal medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and fellowship in clinical immunology at the University of Colorado. Dr. Levine founded the Colorado Patient Safety Coalition and served for several years as its president. He also served for many years as a delegate to the American Medical Association and is a member and chair of its Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs. Dr. Levine practiced general internal medicine in the Denver area for many years in a variety of practice settings. He co-founded and developed a large physician group practice. And to add to his incredible career, vast experience, and legacy, his father, Dr. Philip Levine, is remembered as one of the greatest contributors in transfusion medicine. Thank you very much, Dr. Levine, for being here with us today. It is truly an immense pleasure and honor for us. Thank you, Tony. Dr. Levine, we'll we'll kick off uh, the podcast here. And the first question is, let's start with a brief journey through the history concerning the beginnings of blood transfusions and what key milestones you consider have marked advances in the transfusion medicine field. Well, uh, thanks, Tony. Uh, The history is very rich, as you can imagine. Even the ancients had some idea that blood was somehow essential to health and well-being. And through the prehistory and early recorded history, there were occasional experiments of trying to pass blood from one to another in an attempt to to help people, not only physically, but sometimes also spiritually and uh, otherwise. And these transfusions even occurred from animals, but they were very primitive in the sense that the only way to transfer the blood for the most part was from one person's vein into the veins of another, uh, you know, from the donor, which could be an animal or another human into a person. Of course, today we are much more sophisticated than that, in that it is not only blood that we use uh, in helping people, but also the components of blood, and all of that was very much in the future. The 19th century really was the beginning of uh, what we would call the modern concept of blood transfusion, 
the development of syringes enabled people to take blood from one person and put it into another. This kind of transfusion was occasionally successful, was uh, applied to some areas that we now see worth in, such as hemophilia and, and blood loss from postpartum hemorrhage, for instance. But it was only successful occasionally, perhaps 50% of the time. And repeated transfusions were problematic in that after people had an initial transfusion, a, a reaction to subsequent transfusions was quite likely. So the major thing that happened to uh, straighten this out was the work, the uh, Nobel Prize winning work of Carl Lonsteiner in 1900, who mixed donor and recipient blood in uh, what we would uh, call now a, a very primitive form of cross-matching and recognized that there were different factors uh, associated with different people. And we now know this as the ABO blood factors. Lonsteiner himself then moved to the United States and subsequently discovered several other blood factors, as we will hear <laughs> as, uh, as we go on. The major changes in the early 20th century, however, were also technical. The development of anticoagulants and use of refrigerated blood enabled then people to receive blood that was not just directly transferred, but rather done at different points in time. World War I saw huge advances in blood donors and blood banking yeah, began to uh, come into effect. As time went on, we recognized that uh, we could also cause harm with blood transfusions with the passing of infections. And uh, it wasn't until perhaps the 1930s or thereabouts that people began to be screened for things such as even tuberculosis, malaria, uh, etc. The 1930s were dramatic. The development of the first American blood banks happened at Cook County Hospital. A huge influence upon blood banking was uh, in 1939, when actually my father, Philip Levine, described an unusual case of hemolytic transfusion reaction in people who were of the same ABO blood type actually between a mother and father of a child who was uh, affected with erythroblastosis vitalis, <laughs> which uh, coming from a blood banking family was one of the first phrases uh, that I was taught as I was growing up. Erythroblastosis vitalis, also known as hemolytic disease of the newborn, caused by a, a reaction between the blood of the mother with the antibodies against antigens present uh, on the fetus. Uh, this was later found to be related to an antibody that um, had the same reactivity as one that was described by injection of human blood into rhesus monkeys and subsequently became called the RH factor, which, which led to some interesting discussions about the naming of the antibody. I think actually one of the most important aspects of transfusion 
in this period of time was the development of exchange transfusion by uh, Lewis Diamond in Boston, who was able to uh, help children who were affected with erythroblastosis vitalis by exchanging their blood with blood that uh, was able to clear the hemolytic products that were in their blood and, and help to save them. The other major advance was in 1958, when actually the laboratory at Ortho, led by my father, published, uh, and my father actually published, a paper called The Influence of the ABO System on RH Hemolytic Disease, which showed that uh, if there was an ABO incompatibility, the incidence of RH hemolytic disease was much less because the antibodies in the mother's serum would destroy red blood cells that might have crossed the placenta before they had a chance to immunize and cause uh, difficulty. That insight led directly over the next decade to the development of antiserum against the Rh-positive blood that would be transferred through at the time of pregnancy and the development of Rh immune globulin, Rogam, which followed thereafter. As a result of that, this um, wound up saving hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of lives since that point in time. Today, blood transfusion is very safe. It is very simple. It is very straightforward. It is very systematized. And uh, it is one of the, the medical breakthroughs that has saved multiple lives throughout the last century. Thank you for that complete uh, overview and history of the importance of blood from a transfusion perspective. It, it's a long history, but also a short history, same time. Let's continue with the general overview from, from your perspective about patients and conditions that are impacted by transfusion of blood, plasma, and platelets. What population is it that is often in need of frequent transfusion of blood products? The, the usual populations um, are uh, first thought of as those who have inherited disorders such as sickle cell disease or hemophilia, uh, thalassemia. And that's not just of blood. It's also a blood product that are derived from the donation of blood. But there are also acquired conditions too, uh, uh, hemorrhage, particularly postpartum hemorrhage and trauma uh, and things like that, anemia, um, cancer, kidney disease, liver disease, fear infections, thrombocytopenia, other forms of clotting disorders besides uh, hemophilia, etc. There's a very, very broad range of medical conditions that require transfusion. Yes. Since the um, recent COVID-19 pandemic, we have heard uh, much about the deficit in inventory of blood for the blood banks. So continuing the message of how important it is to donate and donate regularly, let's talk from the donor's perspective. Are there general benefits, theoretical or proven, for donors who are repeat donors? 
There are. Uh, some of them are more concrete than others, but there are certainly advantages. If nothing else, the, the sense of well-being and being a member of society and contributing to the well-being of others uh, is reflected in self-satisfaction and self-esteem, etc. It's been shown that people who donate blood regularly have a lower risk of depression and and actually better physical health and a longer life. And at, at minimal cost, the, uh, the process of donation is uh, very simple and straightforward. Some of the other advantages are, well, number one, may lose a few calories from the, uh, from the but the, the, that's not very much. It's about the rough equivalent of a tasty piece of chocolate, and uh, that's, uh, that's about all. The other thing is that some people donate blood because of the use of blood in a family or a friend, what we call a, a replacement donation. And that used to actually be uh, fairly common in um, blood banking, although it's no longer very much of a factor for a variety of reasons. There are some people who need to donate blood regularly, people in particularly who have too much iron in their blood, a condition called hemochromatosis. That's rare, but for those people, donation of blood is very important. And interesting to note that their blood is safe and is uh, able to be used for transfusion it's a genetic abnormality and not something that is transmissible through the blood. There's also a, a, a growing literature uh, looking at the population of people who donate and compare them to others. It's difficult research because there's a thing called the donor effect. Uh, the people who donate blood generally tend to be a healthier group of people and etc. But ne nevertheless, there is some evidence that uh, donation of blood, and particularly reducing the circulation of the amount of iron in the body, can have some uh, benefit. Cardiovascular disease and uh, hypertension are thought to be lower in people who donate regularly, uh, particularly cardiovascular disease in women. There's also some recent evidence that there are certain what we call forever chemicals that uh, can be in the body and are associated with various diseases, including cancer and cardiovascular disease, and that these appear to be lower in people who donate blood regularly. Although the threat of these forever chemicals is, uh, has been reduced uh, recently uh, in, in recent years as there's been much more attention to these uh, and they're not as available in the environment as they used to be. Uh, so the relative effect of that is, uh, is small. There's also some recent attention to cancer. There are some cancers that appear to be dependent upon their, their, their growth, at least, is dependent upon the availability of iron. And regular donation reduces the amount of iron in the body, not to critical levels, but to some degree. And that has been shown to have uh, some effect upon cancers. The, 
the, the clinical impact of that appears to be marginal at best, but it is a sign of uh, something that many people are studying now to understand the relationship between iron metabolism and cancer and the effect of um, regular blood donation. But one of the most important benefits of regular donation is the support of people. Some people give because of the need of a family or a, a friend um, who has received transfusion and they wish to repay the blood bank. That's um, a, a feeling of uh, self-sacrifice and donation that uh, many people value very much. And people who um, donate regularly um, are shown to be uh, a population of people who are more selfless than others and uh, more willing to contribute to the common good. Thank you. The, the topic of the iron accumulations, uh, there is a, a published paper in the Journal of National Cancer Institute reviewing the link between uh, repeat donors having lower risk for some of the cancers like liver, lung, colon, and stomach and throat cancers. I, I appreciate you taking the time to to review that with us because I think that's significant information from the standpoint of of you know something that could be of, of value to those uh, out there as donors to understand that they may be reducing their risks for cancer. I mean, unfortunately, that uh, that study has not yet been replicated and is 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 still not quite definitive, but it is certainly raising the possibility that that's correct. Right. Okay. Great. Well, just to end this very interesting conversation that we've had so far, Dr. Levine, what would your message be to our listeners to encourage them to go to the nearest donor center and book an appointment today to donate? My message to them would be to do that, to donate once, to realize how good it makes you feel, and then to donate again and again. It's a very worthwhile thing. I've donated multiple times through my life, and it's always a good feeling to walk out feeling that you have contributed to the common good. Thank you. Uh, that is a fantastic message uh, for the donors out there that are considering donating and those that routinely donate. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Levine. I really want to thank you for taking the time with us today and giving us your experiences and insights on this fascinating topic. Thank you so much for your time today on this podcast. It has been truly an honor to talk with you about the importance of donating blood and more importantly, to become a repeat donor. Thank you, Dr. Levine. Thank you for the opportunity to contribute. I hope you all have enjoyed this podcast episode about the benefits of becoming a repeat blood donor and the positive impact in health and for the community. Make sure to review the sections within the podcast description for any reading materials that we've suggested. Based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with our pop quiz. What is the interaction between donating blood and levels of iron?
You can always go back and listen again. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Quidel Ortho Science Bites, brought to you by Quidel Ortho Corporation, where we are transforming the power of diagnostics into a healthier future for all. Take care, stay healthy, and safe.